Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today's topic is somebody that listeners have been asking us to cover since 2017. And that's when the first book about this person uh, came out. But she really caught my attention about a year after that when she was depicted on the TV show Timeless, which is a show I loved a whole lot, and I know a lot of our listeners did also. I heard about her again on the podcast Criminal in 2019, and we got listener mail uh, asking for her after both the Timeless appearance and Criminal. And then our colleague, Christopher Hasiotis, who clearly has a knack for episode pitches because we've this is the second one we've done recently that's something he sent us a note about. He sent us a note about her earlier this month, and I was finally like, okay, universe, I have received your message. We will do a podcast on Grace Humiston. Grace Humiston, also known as Mary Grace Quackenboss, depending on what period of her life we are talking about, was an attorney and an investigator who did a whole lot of work to exonerate people who were wrongfully convicted, to expose corruption, and in one particularly dramatic case, to solve a murder that the police had written off as the victim having just run away. That last one earned her the nickname Mrs. Sherlock Holmes. And in her words, though, she said, quote, "'No, I never read Sherlock Holmes. In fact, I'm not a believer in deduction.'" Common sense and persistence will always solve a mystery. Never need theatricals nor Dr. Watson's if you stick to a case. So all that sounds pretty cool. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, some of her work was part of a moral panic over what people were calling white slavery in the early 20th century. And this really hinged on the idea that white women and girls were being trafficked into sex work in just staggering numbers, She made some unfounded allegations during all this in the latter part of her career, and it really tarnished her reputation. Uh, And also, just a heads up, there are mentions and discussions of various sex crimes in this episode because that was one of the things that she was investigating. So Grace Humiston was born Mary Grace Winterton in New York City on September 17, 1869. Some accounts describe her father... Adoniram Judson Winterton as a merchant and a lay minister in the Baptist Church. He also worked as an insurance adjuster, and later in life, Grace talked about accompanying him to court when she was still a child. Grace attended Hunter College, and after she graduated in 1888, she spent some time teaching. On June 5th, 1895, when she was 25, she married a doctor named Henry Forrest Quackenboss, Some accounts of her life that have been written in the past few years claim that they got divorced almost immediately because Grace found out that Henry was using peepholes to watch his patients while they were undressing. However, the source for this allegation seems to be a 1921 gossip column in the New York magazine The Tatler, whose cover for that issue included the tag Movies, Mirth, Merriment, and Misinformation. Not only does the tattler offer no source for this, but it also claims that it was Henry who said that Grace's, quote, addiction to peephole practices in his office had been annoying and embarrassing to him in the practice of his profession. This is also in the context of a piece that is extremely disparaging of Humiston and her purported inability to keep her husband's happy because she was too focused on work. There's a lot of layers 
to that whole problem. There's a lot going on here, uh, yeah. So it really, the, none of that should be taken as fact. Yeah. Uh, on top of all that other stuff, that came out in 1921, and that was many, many years after they had gotten married and divorced. So a lot of question marks about the Tatler and its gossip columns and how it's made its way into current discussions of her. In the early 1900s, Grace started taking night classes at New York University Law School. And at first, this was mostly about learning how to protect herself and her investments, but she really excelled at her studies. And with the help and encouragement of the law school's dean, she moved into the day program, so the regular law school class. She completed that in two years rather than three. She graduated with a Bachelor of Laws in 1903, and she ranked seventh in her class. That same year, Grace's mother, Isabella, died, and her father died in 1904. From that point, Grace dressed only in black, except when she needed some other outfit to blend in during an investigation. Working under the name Mary Grace Quackenboss, she started working for the Legal Aid Society, and then she started her own firm, which was called People's Law Firm. She focused on hiring and training other women to work with her, and her clients were mostly poor people and immigrants. Since she already had this independent income, she didn't really have to charge very much. She described it as St. Regis Law at Mills Hotel prices. Her clients basically paid her what they could, and that could be anything from the typical fee for legal work to some baked goods or some handmade clothing, or essentially nothing. Um, there's part of me that enjoys this will work for fresh bread idea. (laughs) (laughs) As often as possible, Grace tried to resolve her clients' needs out of court. Today, there are laws in the U.S. requiring competent courtroom interpreters for deaf people and for people with limited English proficiency. That was not the case in the early 20th century, though. Out-of-court settlements were generally easier for clients who did not speak much English, as well as being faster and less expensive. A lot of the cases that she took on at her law firm involved things like wage theft, child support, and predatory landlords and business owners who were taking advantage of her clients. She also did a lot of work to just help immigrants navigate the U.S. legal system. Grace became known by a number of nicknames, including Sister, Mother, and Portia of the East Side. And people started coming to her for help with bigger and bigger issues. In one case, an insurance company had gone out of business without paying roughly a million dollars in life insurance claims to multiple widows. Grace pursued this case for more than a year until a judge took steps to hold the company's former directors accountable. At one point, she also got another attorney disbarred for charging clients far more than the $10 maximum fee for filing a deportation appeal. She also got their money back for the excessive fees that they'd paid. Yeah, he was charging people like $150 a pop for something that was legally capped at $10. Just preying on desperation. Yeah. So as her reputation spread, students from Wellesley wrote to Quackenboss asking her to defend Antoinette Tola, who had shot and killed her landlord on March 4th of 1904. Tola had been convicted of the crime and had been sentenced to death by hanging, but the young women from Wellesley were convinced that she had been acting in self-defense. Even though Quackenboss had never argued a murder case before, she took on this work pro bono because she said she would, quote, prefer to take the case without renumera as woman for woman. 
In this case, Antoinette Tola had a lot working against her. She had immigrated from Italy. She mostly spoke Italian. Her landlord was Joseph Santa, who was one of the most prominent citizens of Kingsland, New Jersey. He had been found murdered in the home that Tola shared with her husband, Giovanni, and the witnesses at her murder trial had included Santa's six-year-old son. On the stand, he had testified that Tola had sneaked up behind his father and shot him in the back of the head. This was obviously very compelling testimony to the jury. Tola's previous lawyers had already tried to get her a new case based on evidence that Santa had been armed when she shot him, but the judge had claimed that no such weapon seemed to have been found. Quackenboss went to see the evidence that had been collected from the crime scene, and she found that, yes, Santa's gun was right there. She reviewed the autopsy report, which showed that Santa had not been shot in the back of the head like his son had said on the stand. She also discovered that Tola's court testimony had been translated by a student. That student had gotten a lot of basic facts wrong. In Tola's account of what happened, Santa had been pressuring her for sex and physically assaulting her for at least five months. She had tried to get her husband to defend her, but he would often just leave the house when Santa came in. She had gone to Santa's wife, who had told her to get a gun and that she could scare him with it. Earlier on the day of the murder, Santa had come into her home, accosted her, and threatened to kill her. She had gotten away, but when she came back, he was still there. When he grabbed her again, she struggled to get away, and then she shot him. Over a period of several months, Grace managed to get the execution postponed several times, but she ran into one roadblock after another when trying to get the verdict overturned or to secure a pardon or to get the U.S. Supreme Court involved. After multiple stays of execution, Antoinette Tola was scheduled to hang on March 12, 1905, Just three days before that, Mary Grace Quackenboss finally managed to convince the Board of Pardons with all this evidence she had gathered to commute Tola's sentence to seven and a half years in prison. This was the first case that really brought Mary Grace Quackenboss to prominence, but there were definitely others. And we'll talk about more after a sponsor break. Around 1906, some of the clients who came to People's Law Firm for help were women who were reporting that their husbands or their sons had gone missing. They had apparently disappeared after going to Florida to find work. Even though Mary Grace Quackenboss wasn't a reporter, she pitched this to McClure's as a story that she would write for the magazine. The magazine paid her expenses for a seven-week trip that she took to investigate what was happening. What she found was a widespread system of debt peonage. Men were being recruited to work in several industries, including mines, railroads, and lumber, but especially in turpentine processing. Employers charged money for everything from workers' passage south to housing and equipment once they got there. So soon, people were trapped in a debt to their employers that they just could not pay off. This practice had been outlawed in 1867, but it was still rampant, and many of its victims were immigrants and Black people. Yeah, this is one of the highly exploitive systems of labor that evolved after slavery was abolished. 
In October of 1906, Quackenboss took all the evidence that she had gathered to Attorney General William Henry Moody, who appointed her Special Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York to continue with this investigation. He dispatched Assistant Attorney General Charles W. Russell to the area as well, and together they started building cases to shut down businesses that were running these peonage schemes and to indict the people that were running them. At one point, Grace needed to deal with an employment agency that was run by Hungarians. Since she didn't speak the language, the Department of Justice assigned a Hungarian agent named Julius J. Krohn to work with her. And she and Krohn worked together for years after this investigation was over. In 1907, the Italian ambassador to the United States asked Quackenboss to investigate what looked like a similar scheme at Sunnyside Plantation in Mississippi, The ambassador had gotten some really alarming letters from Italians who were working there. He wanted Grace to look into it. Before the U.S. Civil War, Sunnyside had been a slave labor camp. After the 13th Amendment to the Constitution outlawed slavery except in punishment for a crime, Sunnyside's owners had replaced its workforce of enslaved Africans with incarcerated men from a prison in Alabama and then started working with agents in Italy to recruit immigrant workers. These agents would loan workers the money for their passage across the Atlantic, so they arrived from Italy already in debt. And then from there, they were made to live in really squalid housing. The cost of that housing was deducted from their pay. Workers were also charged for the mules that they needed to work the land and for ginning and baling the cotton that they grew and harvested, basically everything they needed to do their jobs and to just survive. They were also paid at least partly in script that could only be used at the company's store. Once the workers' debts were paid off, they were allowed to sell part of their cotton crop for their own profit. But the vast majority simply could not pay off their debts. Grace also interviewed people who had escaped the plantation and then been forced to return at gunpoint. Grace's investigation pitted her against some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the area. These included O.B. Crittenden, Leroy Percy, and Morris Rosenstock. Together, they had established the O.B. Crittenden Company to lease several cotton farms in the area, including Sunnyside. They were operating all of these farms. Among other things, Percy was friends with U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. Grace had gone undercover for her investigations in Florida, but that practice backfired in Mississippi when one of the Italian-speaking investigators on her team was arrested for trespassing and jailed. So she went to the acting governor, Xenophon Pindall, who wrote to the Crittenden Company asking for her to be allowed onto the property. Although the partners agreed, they tried to prevent her from ever speaking to the workers without someone from the company present. Quackenboss tried and succeeded to negotiate better contracts with more protections for the workers at Sunnyside, while also building a case for federal prosecution. And the more work she did that was related to the federal charges, the more resistance and harassment she faced from the partners of this company. Soon, local newspapers were calling her a socialist agitator, and the Crittenden partners were trying to undermine and threaten her. At one point, someone broke into her room and they stole all of her notes and evidence. But then one of Percy's cronies returned them to her, claiming they had been confiscated from a known felon. This was both... (laughs) 
Uh, it was terrifying. Somebody had come into her room and stolen all of her yes. stuff. Um, and then also, uh, she had just written a letter summarizing all of her findings, but she was like, my whole investigation is lost if I don't actually have that evidence to back it all up. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I'm, I'm only laughing at the confiscation claim. It's like, going, my dog you're, tried to eat your homework, and then I saved yeah. it from him. I saved it from the dog's mouth. Yeah, exactly. Here it is. Although Quackenboss managed to get O.B. Crittenden arrested during all of this, Percy went to the president to get him to intervene. Percy essentially argued that he wouldn't get in the way of the charges against his partner as long as Quackenboss was recalled to Washington, which she was. Percy did not keep up his end of the bargain, though, and successfully prevented Crittenden from being indicted. Percy was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1910. Grace's work in both Florida and Mississippi had been deeply unpopular among landowners, officials, basically any other wealthy people in the area. Over the course of these investigations, she was undermined, threatened, vilified as a hysterical woman, and even shot at. And although she unearthed clear evidence of wrongdoing, what happened with that evidence was largely out of her hands— a major peonage case that followed her investigation in Florida ended with an acquittal, and laws against peonage continued to just be ignored for decades after she left the South. However, it does appear that her work led to a big reduction in cases of debt peonage involving immigrants to the U.S. Other people were still being victimized, but the trafficking of immigrants seems to have dropped for this purpose after this. And after her investigation at Sunnyside, Quackenboss went abroad for a year to investigate the European end of this whole peonage scheme. She testified during congressional hearings on peonage in 1910. That same year, she also wrote to the House of Governors, also known as the Governor's Conference, about overcrowding and the spread of tuberculosis, particularly in New York City, and how it might be alleviated if more immigrants to the U.S. were resettled into more rural areas. She noted that many people who arrived in the United States from Europe were farmers or farm laborers, but then wound up living in cities that already had established immigrant populations from those same regions. She argued that establishing immigrant communities in more rural areas would help everyone involved. This was a counterpoint to people who were trying to just curtail the rate of immigration overall. She was more like, no, immigrants bring a lot to this country maybe should not be just densely packed into cities where people are having trouble finding work. On June 8th, 1911, Mary Grace Quackenboss married Howard Donald Humiston, who was also a lawyer. We know basically nothing about their marriage. Grace Humiston opposed the death penalty, and she worked to overturn the death sentences of people who had been wrongfully convicted or had been sentenced to death in spite of mitigating factors in the crime. In 1916, while at Sing Sing Prison investigating another case, Deputy Warden Spencer Miller Jr. suggested that she look into the conviction of Charles Frederick Stilo. Stilo and his brother-in-law, Nelson Green, had both confessed to murdering Charles B. Phelps and his housekeeper, Margaret Wolcott. Phelps had been killed in his home, which was across the street from Stilo's house, and Walcott had been found dead on Stilo's doorstep, Stilo and Green had been tried separately, and after Stilo was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to death, Green struck a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to life in prison. 
The two men's confessions were the only thing linking them to the murder, but Humiston found that those confessions had been coerced. Stilo's wife had just had a baby, and an agency detective had told him that he would be able to see them if he said that Green had done it. Then the detective told Green that Stilo had implicated him. Humiston also found forensic evidence that a gun that Stilo owned could not have been the murder weapon. After speaking to Stilo and reading his signed confession, Humiston also concluded he just could not have written it himself. The confession was written with a much larger vocabulary than he actually used in conversation. Multiple other investigators and activists were part of this effort to try to get them a new trial or clear their names. But as had happened in the Antoinette Tola case, they just ran into obstacle after obstacle. Every time they got a stay of execution, Stilo was once again sentenced to death afterward. And this happened seven times. That included after another man named Erwin King said that he and Clarence O'Connell had killed Phelps in a robbery attempt. One of these last-minute stays happened after Grace's team took evidence to a judge at about four in the morning when the execution was just over an hour away. Uh, There was a 1918 write-up of all this in Good Housekeeping uh, detailing this whole very dramatic effort to exonerate Stilo, and it was titled... Where there are women, there's a way, and they will take it. One of the activists involved in this effort was labor lawyer and suffragist Inez Milholland, who died after collapsing on a speaking tour in 1916. Journalist Sophie Irene Loeb, who was both working on and covering the case, told New York Governor Charles Seymour Whitman that Milholland's last wish had been for him to hear Stilo's appeal for clemency. Whitman finally commuted Stilo's sentence in November of 1916, four days after Milholland's death, and he pardoned both Stilo and Green on May 8, 1918. It does not appear that King and O'Connell were ever tried for this. King repeatedly repudiated his confession, only to then give a different, contradictory confession later on. At one point, a grand jury refused to indict the two of them because Stilo and Green were already imprisoned for the murder. By the time Stilo and Green were exonerated and released, O'Connell was incarcerated for another crime and King had disappeared. We've got more, including Grace Humiston's most famous case after a sponsor break. On February 13, 1917, 18-year-old Ruth Kruger told her sister she was going to go run some errands. One of those errands was getting her ice skates sharpened at a motorcycle shop that was owned by Alfredo Cochi. When she did not come home, her sister went looking for her. When Ruth's sister talked to Cochi, his behavior was just unnerving and strange to her. She told the police about her suspicions when the family reported that Ruth was missing. Police questioned Kochi, who said that Ruth had dropped off her skates to be sharpened and then picked them up later and left. Police searched the shop and found nothing. Then, a few days after Ruth's disappearance, Alfredo's wife Maria reported her husband missing. Ruth's disappearance attracted a ton of media attention. She was a pretty white teenager, described by her family as a good student and a good girl who taught Sunday school. They asked for help in finding her, and they offered a reward. 
Investigators were just flooded with hundreds of tips, none of which panned out. But police focused on one in particular. That was a cab driver who reported that he had taken Ruth and a much older man as passengers together on the day that she disappeared. Police also talked to a couple of college students who Ruth had gone out on dates with. Based on all of this, a little over two weeks after Ruth disappeared, police concluded that she had run away or eloped with a boyfriend and they closed the case. But her family insisted this was impossible and they hired Grace Humiston. Humiston immediately focused on Alfredo Kochi. In addition to what Ruth's sister had described, he had inexplicably closed his shop for several hours on the day of Ruth's disappearance. Hammiston got Julius Crone to go undercover as a repairman in Kochi's shop, which they needed a repairman since Alfredo himself had gone missing. He didn't know how to repair bikes and motorcycles, so he sort of made it seem like he was always about a day behind so he could research how to fix problems at night and then come back to the shop the next day and take care of the actual repair. I love him for this. I love him <laughs> for this. I love his fake it till you make it approach to it. And that he really intended to fix bikes while he was there. <laughs> while he was also trying to do undercover work to find evidence of Ruth Kruger, yeah. Yeah, like people need their bikes fixed. Um, Maria Kochi became suspicious of Crone, and she fired him after he spent too long in the basement one day. So then they had to find another way to look for evidence. They eventually discovered a coal chute adjacent to the building, and they got permission to excavate under the sidewalk. Although they eventually found a corset cover, some newspapers from just after Ruth disappeared, and bones, the corset cover was not Ruth's, and the bones were not human bones. Meanwhile, Alfredo Cochi was found in Bologna, Italy, on May 31st, 1917. He claimed that he had gone to Italy because he was sick of his wife, and he said that he had learned about Ruth's disappearance only after arriving in the country. Allegations surfaced that Kochi had been luring girls and young women into his shop for trysts with himself or his customers. The girls' families hadn't gone to the police because they were afraid of scandal. A woman known as Consuela LaRue, who gave a series of increasingly fantastic statements during all of this, claimed that two men attacked her after giving Humiston information about the case. Yeah, um, Consuela LaRue was like a very public presence in all of this. She made a lot of statements about the case. Uh, some of them appear to have come from a novel. Uh, a lawyer who was representing Maria Kochi filed a whole series of complaints about the digging around the coal chute and how much dirt was being brought up to the sidewalk. But then someone convinced Maria to sell the building. She had already been planning to sell the bike business after her husband disappeared. That someone was one of Grace Humiston's assistants. And when the building was listed for sale, Humiston bought it so her team could search however they wanted. On June 8th, 1917, Grace Humiston's crew found Ruth Kruger's body. It was in a pit concealed under a workbench in the basement of Alfredo Kochi's shop. She had a fractured skull and a stab wound in the abdomen, and her blood-stained ice skates were found nearby. Later, Humiston said of all this, quote, I've noticed that some folks are saying, I found the body because I followed my intuition. Every time a woman does make a discovery, someone pipes up intuition. Let me say that in this instance, it was just plain everyday common sense by Crone and myself. 
backed by a determination to keep going until the case had cleared up. This discovery sparked an enormous scandal for the New York City Police Department. The mayor personally apologized to the Kruger family for how the investigation had been handled. Since police said they had searched the shop's basement two different times, an investigation was launched to figure out how they had missed that her body was hidden there. Investigators also started digging up basements in other locations around the city where other young women had been reported missing. These internal investigations that followed at the NYPD unearthed a lot of wrongdoing within the police force. It turned out that Kochi and several motorcycle officers had been running a kickback scheme. An officer would write somebody a ticket, and then a third party would tell that person that if they visited Kochi's shop, he could make their ticket go away. Once that person got to the shop, they would either pay him cash or they would buy some extremely overpriced merchandise Kochi and the officer would split that money, and the officer would erase the record of the ticket. One officer had also given Kochi a signed card that said, please take care of Alfredo Kochi, he's okay. He could present that card if he was ever pulled over or stopped by the police. Multiple officers faced charges for their part in this scheme, and one of the detectives that had been assigned to the case, John Lagarin, was convicted of dereliction of duty and fined. The other detective, Frank McGee, faced the same charge, but he was acquitted. Charges that were filed against the head of the New York Police Department's detective branch were ultimately dropped. Reforms that followed included the establishment of a dedicated Bureau of Missing Persons at the NYPD. Alfredo Cochi was still in Italy, and although he confessed to the murder, his confession was pretty muddled. He kept changing his story. Italian authorities determined that he was still considered an Italian citizen. It was illegal to extradite Italian citizens to other countries, so they refused to extradite him to the United States. But they did put him on trial for attempted rape, murder, and giving false information while trying to enter the country. Humiston provided Italian authorities with everything that she had on the case. Kochi's trial began on June 23, 1919, And he changed his story again, saying his wife had committed the murder in a jealous rage. As the proceedings were underway, authorities in Italy received a letter from J.J. Lynch that claimed Ruth had been targeted by sex traffickers and that Kochi was part of a vast international white slaving network. Lynch really had no evidence to substantiate any of this, but his daughter had been killed and he believed that sex traffickers had done it and that Ruth had been the victim of the same people. Kochi's trial had to be adjourned so that Italian authorities could investigate Lynch's claims. Proceedings resumed on October 25th of 1920, and he was found guilty on October 29th. He was sentenced to 27 years in prison, and after going on a hunger strike, was sentenced to 10 years of solitary confinement. He was released from prison in 1947. Humiston's next high-profile investigation started a couple of months after Ruth Kruger's body was found. Lottie Mae Brandon was found dead in her home in Annapolis, Maryland, on August 8, 1917. Brandon was white, and witnesses said that they saw John Snowden, a black man, come out of the Brandon home. A reverend who lived next door said no one had come out of the house. But if Snowden was there, he had a reason to be— He worked delivering ice, and there was a block of ice melting on the front step when the police arrived. 
The Washington Times hired Humiston to investigate this crime and to write about it. And based on the crime scene and what looked like small finger marks in pictures of Brandon's body, Humiston thought she had been killed by someone she knew, possibly another woman. She recommended exhuming the body to look for more evidence. While the doctor who examined the exhumed body was not able to make any determination about the possible finger marks, he found what he said was black skin under Lottie's fingernails. John Snowden had reportedly had scratches on his face when police questioned him. He had also bought a drink at a bar with a dollar, and Lottie May's husband said he'd left her a dollar when he went to work that day. Police tortured John Snowden while questioning him, but he steadfastly maintained his innocence. And in the end, he was tried and convicted of murder. But Humiston was really not convinced that he was guilty, and she felt responsible for having suggested the exhumation. She tried unsuccessfully to secure an appeal. People really started to question whether Snowden was guilty or not, and as his execution date approached, all the jurors that had voted to convict him signed a petition asking for his release. Even so, he was hanged on February 28th of 1919, and he was posthumously pardoned in 2001. Grace Humiston's last high-profile investigation wound up really damaging her reputation and her career. Her work on the Ruth Kruger case and the public response to it had been threaded through with the idea of white slavery. And after Ruth's body was found, that is what Humiston really focused on. So for context, in the years after the abolition of slavery in the U.S. and in the British colonies, the term white slavery was used in the context of labor rights to describe low-paying jobs with poor or dangerous working conditions, jobs that were being worked by people who really had no other options. But over time, the term picked up connotations of women who were forced into sex work. There were, absolutely, women and girls who were victims of sex trafficking. But the specter of white slavery went way beyond that. In the minds of progressive-era reformers, all sex workers were victims who needed to be rescued. Campaigns against white slavery were connected to general anti-vice activity and the breaking up of red light districts that had previously been legal or at least tolerated. All of this was really focused specifically on the purity and safety of white women, with sex traffickers often being framed as immigrant, Jewish, or Black men who were forcing or deceiving white women into a life of crime. This whole idea was threaded through, of course, with racism, classism, nativism, and a focus on white racial purity. This idea of white slavery was the subject of sensational novels and movies, including Traffic in Souls, which came out in 1913. Anti-trafficking and anti-sex work laws were passed in both the U.S. and the U.K., In the United States, it was the White Slave Traffic Act, also known as the Mann Act, which was passed in 1910. A series of international treaties were also negotiated starting in 1904, although to be clear, international trafficking of laborers and sex workers was far more prevalent than the trafficking of white women within the United States, which was just a big focus of this whole moral panic. In the wake of her work on the Ruth Kruger case, Humiston established the Morality League of America. The New York Police Department hired her as a special investigator. 
They hired Crone as well, and Crone and Humiston focused on missing women and girls. The Grace Humiston League was established with the goal of raising a million dollars for, quote, endowing a nationwide organization for the protection of womanhood. During her work in all of this, Humiston alleged that there was a vast sex trafficking operation at work involving soldiers at Camp Upton, which had been built on Long Island as a departure point for U.S. troops headed to Europe during World War I. She claimed that there were 600 unmarried pregnant women living in and around the camp. She also said that seven had been killed, including two underage girls. And while it's likely or even certain that crimes were committed in and around the base, she really had nothing to back up such a broad accusation. The U.S. Army vehemently denied it, and an inquiry ruled that allegations of a huge white slavery ring were unfounded. Rumors of two girls being killed actually dated back to while the camp was still being built, before soldiers started arriving, and there was also no evidence of any bodies being found. Humiston was simultaneously extremely vocal about all this and hard to find when reporters and authorities tried to reach her with questions about it. She claimed that the Army had hired her to investigate this sex trafficking network in secret, which the Army denied. As she continued to make allegations without backing them up, the NYPD stripped both her and Crone of their badges. The Grace Humiston League cut ties with her. The mayor of New York City had appointed a committee to work with her on her anti-white slavery campaign. The committee went to the New York Bar Association to try to have her compelled to turn over whatever evidence she did have. The bar refused, and the committee members all resigned. At the end of 1917, Humiston told reporters that she had already been planning to resign from her work with the city of New York because of the upcoming change in mayoral administrations. This didn't look genuine to people. They were like, you're really just saying you were planning to quit when they fired you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in early 1918, a young man of about 17 came to Humiston's office and threatened to kill her. Humiston was not actually there at the time, but this man assaulted Crone and other staff before police arrived. Humiston blamed the attack on all of this fallout and on the loss of her police badge. In 1919, Humiston still thought that police were targeting her because of all of this and because of her exposure of so much corruption within the New York Police Department during and after the Ruth Kruger case. That year, she opened the Manhattanville Be Kind Club, which was supposed to be a gathering place for women and a daycare. Police shut it down, charging her with operating a dance hall without a license even though she had checked ahead of time and was told she did not need a license. A court later agreed with her. On March 14th of 1923, Humiston was on her way to court when she was hit by a truck at the corner of 59th and 3rd. The driver of the truck, William H. Heck, didn't stop when the traffic officer signaled and blew his whistle so people could cross. Heck said that he thought he had the right-of-way and didn't see her. She had a compound fracture in her foot, so she was pretty seriously injured in far, as far as, like, her life was not threatened by this injury, but it was a long time of recovering. Humiston seems to have largely withdrawn from public appearance after all of this. She died on July 16, 1948, at the age of 76. 
That book that we mentioned at the top of the show is by Brad Ricca, and it is called Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, The True Story of New York City's Greatest Female Detective and the 1917 Missing Girl Case That Captivated a Nation. Tracy, do you have listener mail that is maybe slightly less violent? Uh, I do. It's not violent at all. (laughs) This is from Melissa, and Melissa wrote, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I just got back from a quick trip to Chicago, which I took with my husband, who had some work meetings there last week. While he was occupied with work, I spent an afternoon in the Chicago Institute of Art. It was my first time at that museum, and it was wonderful, and it contains a pretty big collection of Impressionist artwork. As I was doubling back through the Impressionist gallery to take a break outside, I read the captions on some Monet's and a Morisot just as I walked past. About 20 seconds later, as I sat down to rest, I turned on one of your episodes that I had downloaded for my trip. It was Bert Morisot! I quickly ran back into the exhibit to look more closely at the painting I had just walked past. It was a hilarious and wonderful end to my trek around the museum. I loved learning about her since, as you noted, she isn't very widely known or taught, and I didn't know about her role in the whole movement. Thanks. I'm still smiling about that moment. Take care, Melissa. Um, And then Melissa sent us a second email the following day that said, oh my gosh, Holly, I've just started Josephine Nivison Hopper, and you were there at Chicago Institute of Art, too. Ha, I love it. Uh, Thanks for the art episodes lately, Melissa. Um, I delight, this story delighted me so much. Um, I had to immediately go see what what Baird Morisot things are on exhibit at the Art Institute of Chicago, And one of them is a really lovely painting of um, somebody, like, putting her hair up in front of her mirror. She's shown from behind. uh, And it just is a very, like, blue-white kind of color palette. The other one is a woman sitting in a garden in a blue dress. And I don't know which of these is the one that Melissa saw, but both of them, I was like, oh, I'm going to take some time this morning. Look at this art on the uh, Art Institute of Chicago website. Um... I don't think I saw either of these while we were there a couple of years back because we were doing a special event and I was hanging out in a different part of the museum. Yeah. There's a, that museum is uh, expansive and Mm -hmm. also wonderful. I legitimately love it there and I love the the staff there because they're just delightful and helpful and kind. Um, And I, I feel since we have this opportunity that I have to give a shout out to one of the people that works here named Darlene King, who um, is just an amazing person. She was like a, a greeting people when we first walked in. And then later in the day, I asked her for restaurant recommendations and she was hilarious and delightful to talk to. So Darlene, on the off chance you hear this, you made mm. my day and we're wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so thanks, Melissa, for sending this note. Thanks for giving me an excuse to look at some paintings this morning while I was getting my listener mail ready. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com, and we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and really anywhere else you want to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.